0: Sounds kind of weird, dude, <laughs> that I inspire myself, but the reality is that when I get going, I, I feel like I'm more of a channel. I don't really know what I'm doing, but it's good. Turns out great, and it's just flowing through me, and, and one of the things that I hope we, you discover while you're here is that if you're focusing on how you're doing, you're not focused on what you're doing. And so there has to be this idea of you can't do both. You're either here or you're not. And so I just want to start off by welcoming everybody here and also thanking Jack and Trudy, Wes, um, Leela, Maureen, my buddy Howie, he and I was hitting balls today, and, uh, and Noah and Joanna, a new friend, and all of you and the staff here. I, I felt very welcome because what you might not know is I've never been here before and I never taught with more than four teachers. So when when Jack and Trudy asked me to be here, I said yes, thinking it was gonna be them and one other person. And so when it came closer to the time and I had to book my flight, I looked on, I said, There's gonna be like seven or eight teachers there. I said, Hmm, I'm not really feeling that one. Uh, <laughs> because because it's hard enough going into a place that I've never been and and to work with people who probably don't know me. And so and then to figure out other personalities how, how I'm going to interact because most of my work is, is, I don't have a home base, so I go where people are. So when people ask me, uh, the people I work with, I said I work from people from Yale to jail, from locker rooms to board rooms. If you have a mind and body, I could probably work with you. So I always go in and part of that process is how do I go in and blend with what's already there and yet uh, still be myself. And that's been a challenge, and that's always an edge. But I'm happy to say that it's been really smooth in, in this process, and I've, I've really learned a lot. And I'm excited about this talk, and as a matter of fact, there's so much to talk about. Um, it's interesting um, how this is going to play out. I have no idea how it's going to play out. I have all these notes, but usually I don't use them. I just have them like Linus's blanket, you know, just a, just a comfort but anyway, um, so I, we've been talking for all week about the talk I was going to give, and I was going to give the, the talk, well, I am giving the talk on the five spiritual powers. And then as the week went on and I had interviews with people and meeting with the people of color retreat, I realized that I needed to put more skin in the game or take more risk and really talk about stuff that's really difficult to talk about to stuff that we don't necessarily uh, talk about or address, um, so I will do that. But I, I would like to start off by creating a vision, of possibility of this really exciting and powerful that's a reflection of my, my path here uh, in this practice. And then, we, then I'll weave in some of my stories of some of my experiences um, going in and being different, being other. Not just in the way I look, but also my, the perception people have of me, of thinking, or always putting me in a box. And I think we do that to each other. So I think it really makes sense to talk about that. So, so interestingly enough, uh, one of the things that happened almost a year ago, on May 13th, my book, The Mindful Athlete Secrets to Pure Performance, came out. And May 13th is my mother's birthday. And my mother passed away about 15 years ago. But she was very special in my life. And she always supported me through all my thick, all my uh, turbulences, my uh, um, crises, and and whatnot. And the interesting thing is my teachers, such as Jack and um, Trudy, have been bugging me for 20 years to write a book. And Jack actually said to me, dude, if you don't write a book, Kobe will be retired. And of course, Kobe retired this year, and I got the book in one year. I had a schedule. (laughs) But the interesting thing is, is I wrote the book. I've been trying to write a book for 20 years, and then when I stopped trying to write a book, it wrote itself. So that's the paradox. So the reason I'm saying this, even though it's called The Mindful Athlete Secrets to Pure Performance, we could put any... any, um, thing in there like the mindful person, the mindful parent or whatever. So even though it's a sports book, it's really about my life and it's about how I came to this process in terms of how this process has really helped me, how mindfulness, but just the practice of uh, insight meditation has not only helped me deal with with my difficulties, but also got me on a path of uh, a joyful journey of self-discovery. And I'm hoping that people not to uh, be able to experience that and and the undertaking that we're that you're engaged in right now so so what I want to talk about is I guess I have to self-disclose a little bit I'm I'm not very comfortable talking about myself or even being in the limelight so uh, just to give you another a little bit of history I've been doing this for over 30 years and I feel like I'm just coming out of the closet now I'm not minimizing other people coming out of the closet but literally all of a sudden, people are interested in this thing I've been doing surreptitiously in the background where even my clients didn't want people to know that we were engaged in this and they would call me their secret weapon or whatever. So now it's just kind of strange that I can actually talk about stuff I couldn't talk about for many years. So, and that's consistent with my own uh, personal story. But um, So what I want to talk about is this idea of how, I, how this came about. Uh, how it came about was I was addicted to substances for a long time. And in 1984, when I got clean, I'm coming up in 32 years in July. But in 1984, when I got clean, I had chronic pain. I had, you know, I've had injuries because I played sports. But some people, you know, Howie and I laugh. He says he's a has-been. I said I'm a never wars. I never got there because I was always injured and and something happened. But the thing was, when I got clean, I had this migraine, headaches, and chronic pain, and I had to deal with them, and I knew that I couldn't use uh, pain medication. I could use a little bit, but for the most part, I needed to figure out how to deal with with that pain without drugs and alcohol. And, And to be honest with you, I feel like before I got clean, I lived in fantasy. That's how I survived. I grew up one of thirteen and eight sisters and four brothers and I was to be seen and not heard. Didn't have a voice. If I if I expressed my voice I got beat in the submission. And it was like that even as a young man growing up in Boston and and not being able to have a voice without being beat into submission. So obviously it took twenty years for me to, to have the courage to do the book. But anyway, so what happened was I got I was in an HMO, and they had this uh, cutting-edge program that was taught by Joan Boren called Stress Management. And I ended up going doing this ten-week course, and they teach you meditation and yoga. And they gave us a syllabus of books to read—probably twenty, twenty-five books. I read every one of them. I've been averaging over a book a week for the last thirty-two years, so I really got into it, and then I, then I started meditating. So I meditated on my own for about a year, just listening to a tape and then teaching myself. And then I found IMS. I went to a retreat there, and then I discovered Larry Rosenberg, and then I discovered um, CIMC, Cambridge Type Meditation Center. So then I started engaging in the process, and the rest is history. So not only did it help me deal with my pain, not only did it help me with my addiction recovery, but it also got me in touch with the fact that, that I, I needed to be intellectually stimulated. And I didn't know that. Now and I call it seeking wisdom. So, um, so I got into it, and the mindfulness, and I continued being a recovering perfectionist. I read all the books. I ended up going and doing a lot of retreats. I ended up living in the center from, you know, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, and where I live in Massachusetts, We're blessed with having IMS and driving distance and the Center for Mindfulness, as well as the Study Center, and now it's the Forest Refuge. So I was able to do this stuff and really just continuing to sit. For a lot of years, I just did weekend retreats. And then uh, this is what the teachers do. They said, you're ready for a 10-day retreat. I said, "Uh uh-oh. And I did the 10-day retreat, and I shared with some people after a couple of days, I said, I didn't sign up for this crap. What am I doing here? I got to get out of here. And, and it was that difficulty that really, that once I realized that, number one, I don't quit anyway. But, number one, that there was something for me to get. And that was the pivotal moment for me to go through. And once I got to the other side of that, there was a lot of profound, you know, self-discovery, uh, insights. But really just the idea that this stuff really works. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time on on my um, my personal story, but then and it's also I was working for for, as a financial analyst in the defense industry, and then I quit my job and for two years. That's when I lived in the center. I just tried to figure out who I was going to be when I grew up, Um, and just going through that whole process. But the whole time, here's the interesting thing: that these teachers have supported me all through that. They to the point when I wasn't working, they come and say, "Do you need money?" you need money? I'll help you with your rent or whatever. And it was amazing. You know, I'd get an insurance uh, reimbursement that I didn't expect to get that it was just enough for me to pay my rent. So stuff like that happened, and then it kept going and kept going, and I did the three-month course, and then I came home, and then I started teaching in prisons and, and other places and living at CIMC. I was the one, I was the go-to person when people came in and said, oh, could you send somebody to, help, uh, to teach us meditation? And I was the one that went out. And in those days there wasn't a lot of opportunities for me to, to actually teach in places like this. And, and so I had to create my own kind of thing, just going out and, and working with people. And now I've created this whole domain that I've been doing for many, many years. And, and, it's, and it's great. And so this is a privilege to be here. I wouldn't be here if Jack and Trudy didn't invite me. But it doesn't mean I don't teach at these centers. I just don't teach that much. So the language I use is really more secular, but, but the essence is the same. And so I decided instead of making this complicated, instead of uh, retranslating it back to the Pali and all of that stuff, that's way too much work. Um, I'm just going to roll with it the way it is and 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 be myself and that how many people are really new to this practice okay yeah so some people so the challenge is how to speak about it so people really understand not just those that are new but those that have been around and to keep you engaged so when i talk about the five spiritual powers you know obviously i start off with mindfulness and i could i could go into where all this comes from the four noble truths and maybe i'll uh, I'll get to that at some point, but right now I want to talk about mindfulness. And in my book, I call it the eye of the hurricane. I mentioned that in the, in, in the talk. And where that came from, that came from the idea of me watching Michael Jordan play before I work with him and say, This dude seems to get more calm, more chaos, the more chaos on the court. This guy's like the eye of the hurricane. And when I first met him in 1993, even though he resigned from the team, he had, a, he had a sense, I could use the word here, he had Samadhi. He had strong Samadhi. His, his consciousness level, his, his ability to concentrate, you could feel it, it was really extraordinary. And, and so I came up with this idea of the eye of the hurricane and mindfulness is something that's interesting. I've been studying this for many years and I still struggle with trying to explain mindfulness because it's something that goes beyond words, but you know, the attempt I 'll make at it, and, and it's something I've been using. It's like, OK, so I can tell you the definition of it, but I'd rather tell you what it looks like, what it feels like. And so one of the things that comes to mind is this idea of not forgetting or remembering the present moment and what we're doing. And when we're able to do that, that's steadiness of mind. So if you really think about it, when we do that and we have steadiness of mind, that's really concentration. So I'm going to read something here from the Satipatthana Sutta. It's called the definition part of the Satipatthana Sutta from a book um, by Analeo. He says, here, I'm going to say yogis, in regard to the body, a yogi abides contemplating the body diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. Now, one way of interpreting um, free from desires and discontent is concentration or steadiness of mind, or I like the word poise. And so, one aspect of mindfulness is enough steadiness of mind of just being in the moment and remembering what we're doing. So there's the not, there's there's the not forgetting. Then the second part of it is very interesting. It's called presence of mind, or what I like to refer to sometimes is mirror mind. And and what I'd like to read about that is. Um, can find this thing Uh, so presence of mind is face to face with the mirror whatever arises it's allowing things to speak to us instead of going in interpreting and 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 interfering what's happening but just letting it like the mirror just letting whatever is in front of the mirror reflect itself and there's a gentleman his name um, was Eugene Fink and he talks about wonder and the interesting thing is Socrates said wisdom begins in wonder so when I talk about mindfulness, I'm also talking about wonder because we're mindful, but what are we mindful of? We've got to have some idea, some intention of, of what it is we're doing. So he says, It implies an approach that can shatter the taken-for-grantedness of everyday reality. Wonder is the unwillingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us a passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. Of course, that, that requires a certain level of vulnerability. It requires a certain level of trust, and this is where, even though in that reframe it doesn't, it doesn't mention the word trust, uh, trust is very important, and I have all these photos up here, and really it's really about just wanting to Oh, and the other thing I want to start off with is I decided that this is a, my baby picture this is this is this is when I was when I had a lot of Buddha nature you know, and as a matter of fact, I even got my hands like I was doing Tai Chi and sitting way before you all realized that you know, and had to smile, and it's like, yeah, so i was I had it going on back then um, and so um. So this this whole idea of I put it, wisdom. This is where it is. This whole idea of being able to let things speak to us. So you know, so know, remembering what we're doing, the present moment, and knowing what we're doing there. But then there's this other part of it, and I know it's here somewhere. But basically, if I can't find the quote, I'll just uh, paraphrase it. Einstein said, "The most important question." we can ask is whether or not the universe is friendly or unfriendly and if it's unfriendly then we will we will use all our resources to block out to destroy to deny anything that's a threat kind of reminds me of our country right now um and if we think the universe is uh neither friendly nor unfriendly then it doesn't matter what we do But if we indeed decide that the universe is friendly, then we will use all our resources to live in accord with the laws, to live in accord with how the universe is. And that's the the dhamma. That's this practice. And that in order to have that vulnerability, that ability to allow each unfolding moment that's unknown to unfold and just let it speak to us, that takes a tremendous amount of Of trust, of faith, and a lot of times it's just blind faith or just trusting. Okay, so there was this person called the Buddha. Just like just like us, and he he came up with the Dharma, uh, a way, uh, laws, if you will, a way to awakening, and that there's a Sangha, there's there's others who are doing it, and we can support each other. And so this idea of faith is really, really important, and I like to use the the analogy of um, the glass being oh here it is half empty or half full. both are right, but how you perceive it determines the universe you live in. If you perceive it as half empty, then you're coming from scarcity you're in survival mode if you see it as as um, abundant, then you're coming from a mode that says there's enough for everybody, that, you know, we can, we can figure this out, that there's something here that, that's, that we can uh, tap into. So, so when I talk about mindfulness, it looks like steadiness of mind. It looks like presence of mind uh, or this mirror reflection. And then there's another part of it that, that talks about remembering what is skillful and what is not skillful, what is helpful, what is not helpful. And this... Um, Tradition, we talk about wholesomeness. And so when you talk about the idea of, of wisdom or the mind having greed, hatred, and delusion, that's not wholesome. Those, those things, those thoughts uh, lead to suffering. And so we have to understand how, what is wholesome. So part of it is, okay, is this working? Is it not working? Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? So when we're, that's what mindfulness looks like, and then there's another part of it. It's the essentials or the basic fundamentals. And once again, this is where wisdom takes takes a role. We call it clearly knowing, as it said in the refrain. Clearly knowing a little bit too profoundly. So when we sit down or we're doing something, well, what are we doing? What what are the basic fundamentals? And this practice, the basic fundamentals is is to keep the object of awareness and mind. And sometimes we need to understand whether we're focusing on one object and we're trying to get to deep concentration, which actually what it does when we do that and we get into the jhanas, or we get into a concentrated state, what it does, it, it, it puts the hindrances in abeyance. The sensual desire, the ill will, sloth and torpor, the worry and restlessness, the doubt. It, it, it puts it in abeyance, but it doesn't, Get rid of it. So that part of the practice when we talk about the Eightfold Noble Path, which keeps coming up effort, mindfulness, and concentration, that's good for keeping them in abeyance. And morality or right speech, right action, and right livelihood, that is when it arises that we don't say what we feel like saying. We don't take what's not given. We don't harm somebody. And then the wisdom part is where we it out by the root you know what um, Noah talked about the Kalesas and others have referred to that wisdom only by wisdom can we do that and that's an ongoing process that's this process of of the Satipatthana sutta that's what it's about it's about being mindful of the body being mindful of feelings being mindful of mind states being mindful of of objects of mind objects which it could be the hindrances or the the um, awakening factors So when you think about mindfulness, you think about not forgetting the present moment, what we're doing. You think about letting things speak to us. You think about understanding what's skillful, what's unskillful. And that can be as simple as knowing that if if you're meditating with a mind full of greed, that's going to be a struggle. And part of right effort is to say, okay, when greed is in the mind, there's these steps you can take to abandon it. There's these steps you can take to prevent it from arising I won't get into the details but they're there and and that's what we that's what we are are contemplating so when it says diligence what are we really saying we're saying that we want a continuous application of balanced energy or poised energy so we don't quit so it's not this forcing energy where we do something it's more like um, there's a song from our old song called uh, slow motion get you there quicker so it's this idea of steady it's a tortoise and the hare all over again where the hare we, we get and we go and then we sleep and then the tortoise because it's continuous and and it's going and it's persevering it it builds up momentum and it and it wins the race and so that's what we're doing here so when we think about Mindfulness, which is the heart of it, but mindfulness alone is not enough. It needs diligence or right effort. But right effort needs uh, trust or confidence that, yeah, what we do, it works. It matters. And all of these five factors, you know, right effort, mindfulness, wisdom, which I'll talk about a little bit, I, we could talk about the big wisdom, which is you know, the Four Noble Truths, and the Eightfold Noble Path and the Law of Karma. But just for simplicity, if we think of wisdom as information, intelligence, and direct experience or intuition, then that's what we're doing here. We get information from the teachings, and then wise reflection or intellect, using our intellect to reflect on things before we do them makes sense. And then we create a space where we can actually um, observe the teaching or, we com- or compare the teaching to our subjective experience because that's where the real confidence comes from when we can see oh it's so the Buddha says that if I sit still and if I'm mindful I'll start to see how things arise and pass away I'll start to see how I get stuck and how I can get unstuck or I, I see how I can change my mind when I don't like its company that there's all of these things that I can do and it's real simple It's just, and all of these factors will grow. Someone asked me, how do I know my practice is working? Well, what Larry Rosenberg told me years ago was these factors, these um, spiritual factors will grow. So you'll, you'll have more effort. You'll have more mindfulness. You'll cultivate more wisdom. You know, and that part of the issue is, and I know we're running out of time quickly, part of the issue is, when we do something, the effort has to be balanced. With steadiness of mind. And mindfulness does that. Mindfulness says, okay, this is effort. And if you're trying too hard, which a lot of us do, how many are guilty of that? You can feel stressed out. And I said when I gave the instructions, then back off it a little bit. Mindfulness could say, Oh, it's too much. And I need more steadiness of mind, or I need more poise, more balance, more ease. And so we can can adjust that. Now some of us have the opposite where we have sloth and torpor because we're so relaxed we're chilling <laughs> and and we're not bringing more energy more effort in so that so that there's a balance and then the big one where doubt and worry comes from is when we're really intellectual and we know everything and we know we got we got our snowballs hell in you know where of doing this and that's where we need to trust and the confidence we have to be have faith in ourselves and confidence in this path confidence in what we're doing and so we have to talk about that and we have to explore listen to teachings have good friends it's interesting if if you in this book by analeo he he lists the five hindrances and one of the constant remedies for it is suit, uh good friends and suitable conversation Just think about that that's a sangha so we have good friends who, you know, good friends or teachers. We have the teachings. We have wise reflecting on the teachings and what we're doing and that sort of thing. And then we have living according to the teachings, which is, you know, the awakening factor of investigation. You know, what is this? You know, am I, can, I, can I see what I'm doing and what the consequences are? And I understand that if I live or if I cultivate these five powers of, you know, spiritual powers that have more energy. I call it the power of mindfulness. We actually have a more powerful mindfulness, not just a mindfulness that helps us get a little bit relaxed and then we have the mental part, but then we have to have the morality piece. And that ties in to this idea of how we are relating to each other and how we might talk about um, valuing differences because we are so programmed that a lot of times we don't recognize uh others or or others being different so we usually talk about the way people look you know the the race or sexual orientation or whatever but we can go all the way to just somebody not thinking like us because we have this idea that that there's this reality illusion where we all see things the same that is not true no way that's true but we act as if, and if somebody doesn't think like we do, that's why they tell you don't talk about politics and religion. Because that could destroy a friendship. Because our views and opinions, we get identified with it. But I just want to say, it's interesting. I, even talking to some of my uh, African American guy friends, and we talk about this idea of some of you may not know Tom Brady, but Tom Brady is a coach, I mean, a player for the NFL. Uh, New England Patriots, and when he, when Roger Goodell, who said, okay, we're going to suspend you four games, charge all this money to the Patriots and everything, I've, I was very upset and outraged. And my African-American friend said, so why, why are you upset? I said, because they're treating him like he's one of us. Because that's what happens when we get in front of the penal system. You know, it's a little crime. There's no evidence, but they believe we did it. So it's just as if the evidence is there. And the harsh payment or, or the, the the penalty is way beyond the scale. I mean, if you look at the the way the rules are written, if, if you mess with equipment, that should be a $5,000 fine. And so that bothers me, not because I'm a New England Patriots fan, because that injustice, because I... I I'm really not a, I mean, I like them, but I'm, I'm not really like a fan, like my life depends on it. You know, and I know that sounds a little weird, but, but seriously, it's, it's, it bothered me. And I kept saying, why is that pissing me off so much? Why is it bothering me? Because any kind of injustice sh- should piss me off. Because on some level, what they're doing, and here's the other thing, they never, they go after the team. They don't go after the player. So there's something wrong there. And it's the same thing. And it's, it's indifference. I think Ellie Wiesel said indifference is more dangerous than hatred and anger. And it's the same thing if you think about our country. And I don't want to be political, but to me, I sit here every day, and I see President Obama being lynched in public, and nobody says anything. I see a lot of us voted for him twice, and he's not able to select a Supreme Court justice, and we're just chilling. So I'm not suggesting we get politically in, involved or whatever. But what I'm saying is that this indifference we have to address. And so for me, being on the on the end of it, because uh, I have the support of the teachers, but I will tell you that not just in meditation centers, I go places, and you know people don't want to sit next to me, or they say, "Oh, that's the dude that does basketball," or that's the dude that does um, uh, prisons. And there's not just Caucasian communities, the POC communities viewed me like that in the past as well. All he knows is that. So it's that watered down. It's not really real Dharma or whatever. Or if I go to the Center for Mindfulness and they say, oh, he doesn't know anything about MBSR. I'm better than him. Or if he says, uh, I said to this guy, the first law of suffering is, I mean, the first noble truth of suffering. He said, no, it isn't. So I do. He's talking to me like he didn't and probably like, dude, you don't know who you're talking to. But I didn't. I just said, okay, I'm not going to go there. And I'm not like the old dude. where I said, come on, let's go outside. I want to talk to you. Because <laughs> I know you ain't going to talk to me outside like that. But in the presence, you're going to do that. So, so it's, it's like, so, but me having the space between stimulus and response where I don't have to grab him by the neck or call him names or anything, just notice he's ignorant. He's ignorant, and he's coming from a place of fear. But it took me a long time of this practice in developing this eye to hurricane and just realizing that a lot of what I'm doing, a lot of getting to where we need to get to, has to do with getting comfortable with being uncomfortable so that we don't allow indifference or allow it being inconvenient to do something, not only to ourselves but to each other. What kind of community do we want to have? And it's not just the people of color. People... Like myself, have a lot of PTSD. And so something will trigger us, and it has nothing to do with you on some level. But then on the another level, if we, don't, if, if, if we don't see that you understand that, then we're going to feel disconnected. And part of that is on us, but another part of that is just saying, okay, when somebody's acting weird, we don't have to avoid them. Maybe we need to check them out and see, well, what's really going on? and just try to see how they're seeing things. Does this make sense? But This is, this is what I'm hearing. People are feeling disconnected because they're not being seen or they're not, it's not recognized that this work or anything, you can be triggered. I mean, I'll be in with, I can tell you times when I was in with, with a professional team and I'm in the meeting and, and after I'm finished, I'm waiting for them to kick me out. All right, you can go now. Oh, no, we're not going to let you speak. That's not reality, but that's what's going on. I'm feeling that. You know, so this happens a lot. And I remember at IMS one time, I'm doing my yogi job, and, and um, the cooks were cooking in the kitchen 24-7, so I could never clean. So finally I said, okay, you all give me some time where I can come and clean. And one of the cooks called me an uppity yogi. That's not what she really wanted to say, but that's what she <laughs> called me, an uppity yogi. <laughs> and I was on the board of directors there, and then some of the staff members wouldn't talk to me. Walked right by me like I didn't exist. So I'm not saying that to say, oh, poor me. I'm saying it to say that, that it's painful, but at the same time, I had to figure out how to work with it. And having the support of my teachers and other people and people I could talk to was really helpful. And, and so now it's more like, so I feel like I'm speaking this way. I've been there, done that. I've been through that phase where when I go for a job, when I do things, I had to be ten times better than the other dude and still wouldn't get the job. I don't do that anymore, but that was my conditioning. But I'm speaking because there's a lot of people who aren't here or aren't able to speak, so I'm speaking for them. And I'm speaking from my experience. I'm not making this up. This is what happens. And some of us, you know, we may dress differently or we may think differently. And we feel alienated because we we may not value differences enough or at least say, okay, they have the right to be different than us. And if we're going to be mindful, why? The Buddha really is, is specific about that. It's really about seeing how we suffer and alleviating or ending suffering. It's not about trying to achieve something or win a championship or, or you know, uh, have the best relationship or the best car or whatever. It's really about how can we, how can we understand how to, to be a human being and how do we understand that this illusion of separateness is just that. That when one person, if it's Tom Brady or somebody else, or some kid being shot or some guy being choked to death by a police officer, that affects all of us. And I could tell you, there's been times when I worked at places and they said, oh, you'd be good working over there with the little black kids. And I'm saying, okay, so you're white and you're working with black kids and that's okay. But I can't. Because you think I should be with them. Or I'm responsible. They'll say things like, oh, Michael Jordan should take care of the white kids. I mean the black kids. I say, what's wrong with Larry Bird? Why can't he give too? Why has it got to be the black dude? And I get this even from people of color say the same thing, oh he should be doing this, he should be doing that. I'm saying, okay. Most of these guys and some of the girls, women that are in in, the WNBA, they have, they're doing stuff on the side, but the media is not interested in that. So we have this view of them as being spoiled, but but here's what I'm here to tell you, that these millionaires that make all this money, they live most of their life in anxiety and fear of not playing, of getting hurt, of not being selected not being liked or not being able to express who they really are. They have the same issues, probably even more because it, their life depends on if they have a, a injury, especially in football, you got the, the concussion thing. So we, there's a lot to talk about, obviously there's, there's not a lot of time, but what I'm saying is if we can cultivate Mindfulness is the the heart of it, but cultivating the ability to stay steady, to have that initial enthusiasm, and then from that initial enthusiasm, because it's interesting, I was working on one book uh, on Right Effort, and I've been studying this stuff for years, and all of a sudden I saw the word enthusiasm. Where the hell did that come from? It was the whole time. So when we have faith and we know that the universe is a lawfulness, then we can bring enthusiasm and excitement and joy to what we're doing. And I think it was uh, Winston Churchill, he said, success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And that's what we're doing. And obviously i got a whole bunch of stuff here and don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but I'll just suffice it to say that... uh, this is an awesome practice, and the idea of, and I'm speaking from experience, I'm happy. You know, and now that, that you know, all of a sudden people think that I got something going on, I, I had this conversation with Phil Jackson. I said, okay, so are we enabling all of these folks that are doing mindfulness and mindfulness that, this and that? And upon reflection, I said, well, I can't control how people interpret it or do whatever they do. What I can do is talk about a more powerful mindfulness that has to has to do with the threefold training. And also, when this is no longer fat, I'm still going to be doing it because I was doing it before. So why should I give up what I love to do because of some fat? And so, but I think we still need to we, you know reflect and question. Well, what are we doing? Is it helpful? or Is it not? or do we have to get out there and, and, and share more about it? But for me, it's really more about how can we do this thing called life where we get beyond this illusion of separateness? And the interesting thing here is I have some quotes here that maybe I'll read that might make more sense. And I had to check myself, because usually I, I, write, I read quotes from, from folks and they're not always brothers or people of color, so, I'm going to start off with one, James Baldwin. And he said, and this is uh, talking about, considers the essential survival mechanism by which the artist bears his or her burdens of bearing witness to the unnameable. I suppose I'm being an artist here a little bit. Well, one survives, that no matter how you survive this, and in some terrible way, which I suppose no one can ever describe, you are compelled, you are corralled. You are bullwhipped into dealing with whatever it is that hurts you. And what is crucial here is that if it, if it hurt you, that is not what's important. Everybody's hurt. What is important, what corrals you, what bullwhips you, what drives you, torments you, is that you must find some way of using this to connect you with everyone else alive. This is all you have to do this is all you have to do it with. You must understand that your pain is trivial except insofar as you can use it to connect with other people's pain. And insofar as you can do that with your pain, you can be released from it. And then hopefully, it works the other way around too. And so far as I can tell you what it is to suffer, perhaps I can help you to suffer less. Sounds like Buddhism. Then you make, oh, 15 years years later, several thousand drinks later, and they had done that. uh, Two or three divorces. God knows how many broken friendships and exile of one kind or another. Some kind of breakthrough, which is your first articulation of who you are. That is to say, your first articulation of who you suspect we all are. So he seems to understand that we're all connected with that. And of course, there's, there's others. Nietzsche says To those human beings who are of any concern to me, I wish suffering. I wish suffering, desolation, sickness, ill-treatment, and dignities. I wish that they should not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt, the torment of self-mistrust, the wretchedness of the vanquished. I have no pity for them because I wish them the only thing that can prove today whether one is worthy of anything or not, that one endures. So... You know, I can, you know, that's just a couple of folks that I want to, uh, okay, and I think this is from a Zen dude. It's from uh, TZ Suzuki. He says, the more you suffer, the deeper your character, the deeper grows, the more you suffer, the deeper it grows your character. And with the deepening of your character, you read the more penetratingly into the secrets of life. All great artists, all great religious leaders, and all great, Social reformers have come out of the intensive struggles which they fought bravely, quite frequently in tears and with bleeding hearts. And so I like to say that what I'm doing and being up here is not really about me. It's about us. And so each time I can conquer myself or each time I can have impulse control where I'm not causing harm, that has a ripple for everybody else. So I would say, and I suggest it sometimes when I talk to people, that the suffering, you can look at it in a way that empowers you. A way that connects you to yourself and others. And to me, I think that's, uh, you know, if I think about all this stuff, I read this book, and I've had a lot of suffering, tremendous suffering. I still suffer, but it's not, but my relationship to it, just like my relationship to pain, I still go to chiropractor, I still get migraines sometimes, but It's not only manageable, I'm more than that. I'm beyond that. It's there, but I don't identify with it. I experience it. I tend to it. And so when people diss me or dismiss me or don't see me, that's their problem. It's not mine because I know who I am, and I know that on some level, well, it's not some level. This is my philosophy. When, When Michelangelo was asked how is he, create these uh, masterpieces out of marble and he said all I do is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's already inside that's us everybody has a masterpiece I'm not here saying I got to fix you I'm saying let's work together so the best you can be expressed and shared with us but that's what I'm doing that's the game I'm up to and so I don't know if I want to talk a lot more but does this make sense what I'm talking about You know, and I know it's difficult, or I I won't use the word, I don't like using the word difficult. It's a challenge. Because I'll I'll end with this, with some of these, the neuroscience, this guy, his name is Sean Accor. He wrote a couple of books. One book is The Happiness Advantage. And do you know that he's, the research is saying that you can predict somebody's uh, success in a job by three things, optimism levels, social support, and viewing stress as challenges. And so that's what we're doing here, believe it or not. We're doing right effort. We could actually focus, instead of going through an abandoning and preventing the hindrances, what if we just focus on creating our love and compassion like we're doing? What if we can be happy by letting go and letting be? That that mind state, that we, when we observe our experience, when we meditate with a mind without greed, with a mind without hatred, with a mind that's clear about what, what's going on or that is seeking wisdom, which is the antidote to ignorance. That when we do that, our cognitive functioning, our ability to think and see and feel is enhanced. So I've been doing this thing for years, uh, individual warrior, this knee would never be the same, sitting through stuff, and now I'm sitting back and saying, dude, you're making this way too complicated. Just focused on changing your mind and making it uh, a non-hatred or having, you know, happy, making myself happy. And Sean LeCore also says you can be happy by doing a couple of things. One simple thing. If, If I think of three things, new things each day to be grateful for, that would make me happier. If I smile three times during the day, that would make me happier. If I do a a kind act without being found out, that will make me happier. So there's these things we can do. The research says that if you do these things, because here's the other thing. 90% of our long-term happiness is predicated on how the brain interprets our experience. 90%. So this stuff we're doing, it's, it's, it's good. It's real good. It's real skillful. And so you change your mind because when you once you once you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So that's, that's what I'm leaving you with. The short version of this is the mind doesn't have great hatred and delusion. It's probably your friend. It's probably going to be wholesome. It's probably going to lead to good things and you won't struggle so much in your meditation. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is it took me decades to figure this out. And so I'm sharing it with you and maybe... You don't have to go through what I went through. But then reading what I read, it's that difficulty that got me to where I am, but my relationship to it. So I'm really happy to be here, and and I feel like there's so much more I want to say, but I think I said enough. And uh, uh, you all are awesome, and it's great to be here, and I'm happy to be able to see all these masterpieces sitting together or what we call Buddha nature in this practice, or Christ consciousness, or Kuan Yin, whatever works, Spark of Divinity, we have it. We don't have to go get anything. It's here. The question is, are we going to get on the path that allows us to access it and share it with others? So can we just end with a moment of silence? read something. It's called Resist Not Evil. There's a great difference between resisting evil and renouncing it. When you resist evil, you give attention. You continue to make it real. When you renounce evil, you take your attention from it and give your attention to what you want. Now is the time to control your imagination and give beauty for ashes, joyful mourning, praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness the planning of the lord that he might be glorified you give beauty for ashes when you concentrate your attention on things as you would like them to be rather than on things as they are you give joyful mourning when you maintain a joyous attitude regardless of unfavorable circumstances you give praise for the spirit of heaviness when you maintain a confident attitude instead of succumbing to despondency Thank you. Now it's, I believe it's the walking period. Oh, announcement, that's right.